In the beginning, when God created everything contained in the universe, he created humanity. He created human beings. He created the family tree that would lead to you and to me. And Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. The author of Genesis says that God created man in his image. The word man in the, the English language is usually synonymous with male or masculinity. The author gives us a, a fuller picture of the meaning man as he concludes this verse by saying that God created both male and female. Man in Genesis means humanity. It's an all-encompassing word. It includes both sexes of, of male and female. Now, as we look at history from, from the ancient time to the modern times, many cultures from around the world have lived in what's called a patriarchal system, meaning men were on the top, women, children, and slaves classed out lower on the scale and therefore didn't have as, as many rights or responsibilities within the family system and within the more extensive social system. It was pretty easy to take that stance because we would often read the creation count as, in the beginning, God created man, masculine in his image, and oh, oh yeah, and he created both males and females. And we've often portrayed the creation of male and females as an unequal union. Maybe you've felt that play out in, in your own experience or, or in the, the way you grew up in, in a family. But God says that in the beginning, he created mankind as both male and female, equal in value and worth, equal in purpose, and equal in position in his creation. The author of Genesis goes further, and he says in chapter 2, verses 15 through 22, that God created Adam and he placed him in a garden. And then he made the statement that it wasn't good that man was alone. Humanity was not complete with just Adam. Humanity couldn't thrive or complete the task of, of filling the earth and steward the, stewarding the creation with just the man. And so God brought all the, the, the animals to Adam for him to name and, he, and to show the disconnect. It was to show the disconnect and the incompleteness of humanity. There was no one else like Adam that could complete the project that God had given to his image-bearing creation. And so the story goes that Adam put, uh, excuse me, that God put Adam to sleep, and from one of Adam's ribs he formed the woman and brought her to him. Why a rib? Was it a spare part? <laughs> Did he have a spare rib to give away? The Hebrew author is making a pretty specific point about the creation story. The woman, Eve, was taken out of the side of Adam. The idea of, of taking the rib more literally translates taken from the side. So Eve was taken from the side of Adam. In the act of creating Adam, God used the dirt to give shape to Adam, and then he breathed life into him. In this act, God is showing that Adam will be an image bearer of God, and not just like any of the other animals in creation. So why didn't God just make another pile of dirt and create Eve from that? The author of Genesis is showing us that both Adam and Eve were of the same substance. They weren't, they weren't two totally different creatures that just so happened to, to live together. Adam wasn't made from the clay, and Eve wasn't made from potting soil, and they just happened to look like one another. Both Adam and Eve were made of the same substance. Adam and Eve were created to be helpers together, companions that complemented and completed one another in the work that God had given them to do side by side together. 
The story doesn't go that God created Eve from a part of Adam's head, or he didn't pull Eve from the, the foot bone of, of Adam. Uh, you, one person wasn't supposed to be intellectually dominant uh, over the other person, or, or one person wasn't supposed to stomp all over the person in, in physical dominance. Both Adam and Eve were meant to walk side by side in equality before the Lord. And then, as all humans have done since the beginning of time, we decided that we needed to, to look out for our own best interests. And so at the fall of Adam and Eve, you see a wedge created in the relationship with God, but also with one another because of the sin that was in their lives. Why is this important? Well, it's important because it shows the effects of sin on our relationships. You know, how many people here are, are married? Well, I'm sure that we would recognize that, that sin often gets in the way of having a full and healthy and prosperous relationship. Same with dating. Most of the time, it might seem like the person you're dating is, is all chocolate and roses, but, but, but be honest here. Haven't you noticed that sin creeps in and wants to break down the relationship, and especially if we're not careful? Or think about having kids. You may have the sweetest little angels in the world, but if you're honest, every once in a while, sin makes its way in and creates a wedge between you and your kids. Recognizing the effects of sin on a relationship is important because it reminds us that we aren't experiencing the abundant life that God created for us. It's also important to go back to the beginning because as we've been shown and as we've seen, as we're embarking on this study of who Jesus is, we're reminded of his crucial remarks about what he had actually come to do. We see this in Matthew 4, 17, for example. It says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is coming near. The kingdom of heaven is, is crum, coming right into your midst. And the purpose of the kingdom of heaven is to model what God had intended at the beginning of his creation. Jesus is saying that we can be kingdom people. God is calling a, a people to himself. And Jesus is saying that as kingdom people, we live in this, this new tension of, of the now and the not yet. And, and he's going to address that throughout his ministry. What, what do I mean by the now and the not yet? Let me, let me address it by, by talking about a couple of extremes. For a lot of churches, we have a tendency to focus on one of these two positions, the now or the not yet. We get caught up in, in, in the now when we tend to overinflate what the church can do in this world by, by seeing ourselves living in the full glory of God's kingdom. And, and therefore, anything and everything has this hyper and overinflated view of the kingdom conquering and, and ridding the world of all sin and, and all suffering to the extreme that no sin, no pain, no suffering should ever enter, enter into the life of a follower of Jesus. But talk to someone who has an incurable disease or someone who has lost a, a loved one recently, and that, that kingdom now view just doesn't seem to give a realistic picture of this world and how God is working in this world. On the other hand, the, the not yet view sees everything that God is doing as, as distant and in the future. We, we can't wait to, to see Jesus come back and he takes us away from here and gives us a new heaven and a new earth to live on. And, and to the extreme, this view says that nothing we do here on this earth is really going to matter because God's ultimate plan is for a fireball to consume it and we just have to muddle around in sin and suffering and, until that time comes. Both of these views 
bring little hope or peace to our current situation. Both of these views distort what Jesus has told us about what it means to live as kingdom people. Jesus was the most kingdom person who ever lived. And so we, we need to look to him as our example. And what we see in Jesus is one who cares for the needs of the people around him. But he does this as the suffering servant, the one who will humble himself in order to get the work done. And this is the now and the not yet movement. As kingdom people, we are free to influence the world around us and bring kingdom light and change. But the calling comes to do it as the suffering servant, following in Jesus' footsteps. The early followers of Jesus realized that he was coming not only to free us from the past, but he was also inviting us into the future. And the future means that we are living in the kingdom of God right here and right now and waiting for the fullness of time when all things will be made new. We live in the tension of the now and the not yet. And in the meantime, we're to live like kingdom people, doing kingdom things like taking care of one another, seeing the needs in our communities and addressing those with the hope of Christ, preaching the good news that Jesus is Lord. And he, doesn't, he doesn't rule like other worldly powers who, who judge who is actually worthy and who is not. All men and women are image bearers of God and have value and worth in his kingdom. And ultimately, we're being brought back to a place of a, a full and unhindered relationship with God as our creator. And as we truly live like kingdom people, we are being brought back to a place where we are walking beside one another in full relationship and purpose. So, when Jesus steps into the scene, people start to see the evidence that he is the long-awaited Messiah. They start to hear the message that he has come to bring the kingdom of God right in their midst. And they start to see that the grace of Jesus is, is offering, what he's offering isn't just for one class of people, but it's available to everyone. And people start to follow. We're reminded of this in Luke's gospel, right at the beginning of chapter 8. This is where we're going to land today. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And he says this, Afterward, he, Jesus, was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come out of her. Uh, Jonah, the wife of Chua, Chusa, excuse me, Chusa. Uh, Herod Stewart, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. Here we see that Jesus is continuing on in his teaching tour. We saw that he had, just left, he had just left the Pharisee's house, the house where the sinful woman approached him, and Jesus forgave her sins because of her faith, back in chapter 7. Luke says in chapter 8, verse 1, that after, after that, Jesus was traveling from town to town and village to village. And, and the word traveling here doesn't mean that he was just heading off to a destination. Like, like we would say something like this, hey, I'm taking a trip to Walmart today. Or something like this, uh, the family is, is traveling down to Florida on a vacation. With that, you've got a destination in mind. And once you get there, you know, once you get to the store and you get to your vacation, the task is complete. The word traveling here conveys the idea of Jesus continuing on in his wandering ministry. Did you ever see the movie Forrest Gump? Do you remember the part in the movie where Forrest starts his cross-country run? He just gets off from the house, takes off, and, and starts running. Forrest runs from one coast to the other, and then he goes back again. 
Forrest Gump runs for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours. He crosses the United States almost five times before deciding that it's finally time to go home again. Do you remember what happens when Forrest is on his running tour? After a while, Forrest starts to, to gain a, a following, and by the end of his run, it looks like he's got about 50 people following his movements. Forrest Gump was traveling, not with a destination in mind to, to end the journey, but on a trip to take his movement wherever the road would lead. And what do you think it costs? What do you think it costs someone to leave all that they have for three years to follow someone across the country? That's a lot of time and, and money and, and personal dedication, right? That's a, that's a family dedication if you've got family. Jesus is traveling wherever the road leads to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke says, and people began to follow in his steps. Now, normally, the gospel writers make a note that the crowds are following Jesus. They, may, they might word it as the disciples and the crowds were with Jesus on his journey. Luke makes a, a special note here. In verse 1, Luke tells us that Jesus is on a preaching tour, and he says that the twelve were with him. At least in my translation, it says this, capital T, the, and capital T, 12. The 12 were with him. And Luke's taking a moment to call out the importance of the students that were with Jesus. The 12. Well, who are they? The 12 disciples. You know, they're the ones who would later make up the 12 apostles, the cornerstone of the church movement after Jesus ascends into heaven. Most scholars say that the 12 were chosen as cornerstones of the church to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes helped to shape the Old Testament nation of Israel, and the 12 disciples were going to help shape the beginnings of the church. The 12 were going to be given authority, not, just, not only to, to plant the first churches, but to teach and to train the new followers of Jesus. They were also going to be given authority to, to write or influence the writings of the New Testament scriptures. The 12, this was the group. These were the students. When we think of the students of Jesus mentioned in the scriptures, we naturally go to people like Peter, James, and John, and, and the others listed uh, to serve in these 12 disciple-apostle positions. Luke reminds us in chapter 8 about who they are, and he calls them out in, in a prominent way. Of course they're with Jesus. Luke says, look here. Here are the students of Jesus who would later become pillars and ministers in the church as it moves, moves around the world. But notice who is missing from this list. The crowds. Now, we know from a majority of passages that talk about Jesus' traveling ministry that the crowds were always around Jesus, right? They had to try to escape when the crowds would swarm in and they weren't ready for the crowds. In fact, Luke is going to mention them three verses later in this same chapter as we transition to some of Jesus' parable teachings. But here, in the beginning verses, the mention of them is, is missing. But the twelve aren't the only ones mentioned in this story. Luke goes on to tell us that some women are also counted among Jesus' student group, particularly some women who have been healed from sickness and, and freed from demon possession, he says in verses 2 and 3 in, in Luke chapter 8, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene, seven demons had come out of her, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. Now, Mary Magdalene. 
she's famous. She's famous among this group. Uh, there are many theories, including some crazy, one, crazy ones that have been passed down about Mary Magdalene over the centuries. Luke tells us here that seven demons had come out of her because of Jesus's power. The number seven is a number that symbolizes completion in the scriptures. And so by saying seven demons came out of her, Luke is saying that Mary experienced complete freedom from the suffering that she had been experiencing for so long. Luke goes on to mention two other women by name in this passage, Joanna and, and Susanna. Nothing else is written about Susanna. Joanna is said to be the wife of Herod's steward. Now, going to the end of the gospel story, Joanna is also one of the women mentioned at being at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. Her husband, Chusa, would, have, would be uh, the one in charge of Herod's whole household. He was a man in a prominent place, and so she would have been a person of prominence as well. Right here in this passage, we see that Jesus didn't discriminate by position or life circumstances. Anyone was able to pick up and become a follower. Both the sick and the healthy came. Both the poor and those who had wealth, they followed. Those who were oppressed and those who did the oppressing were given a chance to enter into the kingdom of life that Jesus was offering. So you might be asking, why does this matter? Why does this matter? We've got the 12 and we got these women mentioned. Why is it important for Luke to say that there were women following Jesus? I know plenty of women who are following Jesus right here in the church. Well, during Jesus' day, women weren't able to be educated past a certain point. Rabbis certainly wouldn't have had women in their discipleship circles. Jesus' own disciples questioned Jesus when he sat and had a conversation with a woman. We see this in John chapter 4, verses 27. It says this, Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Okay, no one wanted to broach the subject, but they're amazed that Jesus is talking with a woman. The disciples, they're, they're not trying to be jerks here. Uh, they're just working in what it was a, a cultural norm for them. This is just the way things worked. The men advanced, and others naturally held lower positions. We even see this from a woman who comes to Jesus and praises his mother for giving birth to him. We see this in Luke chapter 11, verses 27. And as he was saying these things, Jesus is teaching, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. The woman there in this passage is working from a cultural perspective where men represent the, the seal of the old covenant through circumcision, and women are blessed um, by bringing forth a male child to actually help further national prosperity. It's like the woman is saying, thank goodness for the mother who birthed you so that you could go in turn go and bless this nation through prosperity and influence. Jesus responds to the woman with this, with this. He corrects her, her view. He says, no, blessed are those who hear the teaching of God and obey it. It's not about lineage. It's not about position. It's not about holding the right position. Jesus corrects the idea that the kingdom blessing is going to come from old covenant ways. Luke, being the Gentile writer, is quick to show us that all are welcome to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear and then act on God's instruction. When he calls the, the woman out with the twelve, he's making a statement the kingdom of God is going to work differently than what we're used to. Position nor cultural expectations on gender roles will get you very far in the kingdom of God, in, in the work of the kingdom. 
And so we see that women play an incredibly important role in the work and ministry of Jesus and the church. These women that were following Jesus were praised because they were supporting the ministry with their possessions. They were funding the gospel preaching that Jesus was doing in the towns and the villages. If we look at the Gospel of Luke, we have to say that Luke didn't write a safe gospel. Calling out the position of these women in this day and age and, and the place that they were with Jesus would have at, at best been so, socially awkward. At worst, it would have been a major scandal. I'm sorry to say it, ladies, but this was a, a time and a place where groups like the Pharisees may have been praying out and praising God that they hadn't been created like a woman. Nowadays, we'd be aghast at a prayer like that. We should be. We should be. But at this time, the covenant of God, God's covenant with the people was understood to be sealed with circumcision, and circumcision was something that only a male could participate in. Therefore, even though God had set aside the whole nation for holiness, a gender class system had been put into place because a male was the only one who could fully participate in the full covenant sealing ceremony. Nobody was thinking about gender equality measures. Not in the land of Israel, and uh, for not in, in the most uh, most of the, the wider Roman Empire as well. This was 1900 years before the 19th Amendment was passed, where uh, there was given a voice in our country. But Jesus comes along and says, "Remember that garden experience where both men and women were meant to walk with God in full fellowship, responsibility, and giftings. We're going to do that again. In fact, we're going to see women sitting right at the feet of Jesus as students." We're going to see the women show courage at the crucifixion while the men go run and hide. We're going to see that women, they have the, the first encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and they get to be the first ones to preach. Remember, preach means proclaim the good news to the 12. Now it would be the 11 after Judas dies. Remember the 12 from verse 1, those guys who were going to be commissioned to jumpstart the church. The ladies in the story are going to be the ones to pull men out of hiding when they proclaim that they have seen the risen Jesus face to face. It's only after the testimony by the ones whose testimony wasn't supposed to be trusted, it's only after that testimony that the 11 go running to the tomb. Jesus shows us that we walk side by side doing kingdom work together. Paul reminds us of this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 28. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. We are with Christ. Who is that? There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I want to stop here and say that women have always been a powerhouse within the church. We see women like Lydia in the New Testament opening up their homes so that the churches could meet. We see women being commended for their roles of, of service in the early church. We see Paul speaking highly of the, of the woman Phoebe, who was more than likely the one who delivered Paul's letter to the Roman church. And oftentimes in that first century, the person who delivered the letter would actually stand up and read the message to the, the whole receiving party, in this case being the church in Rome. So just like we see the woman proclaiming the good news about Jesus raised, being raised from the dead, there's a chance that Phoebe was the first one to proclaim the good news in the words, uh, through the words of the letter to the Roman church. 
Later on in history, we see women missionaries taking on the, the mantle to go to places others might not go to, or to carry on with the work after their husbands had, had passed away. There are churches built by the blood, sweat, and tears of women standing up and saying that we need churches to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods and to our friends and to our family. I would bet that when we reflect on the history of Faith Bible Church, you're going to find faithful women putting hours and hours and hours of service to keep things running and the ministry working inside and outside of these walls. Some of you are sitting here today. On this Mother's Day, we celebrate the faithful work of women in the home, in raising of our children. We celebrate women in the workplace as you help move our society forward and, and better our communities. And we celebrate the faithful work that you've done here at FBC. We know that we have women in this church who spend most of their time taking care of children that, that aren't your own. We have women in this church who have taken on the duty of, of caring for a parent in need, and, and even those who are caring for someone who is not a biological parent. We look at all of those categories and say, bless you for following the calling that Jesus has put on your life. You truly do bring the light of Jesus into dark places with grace and beauty. When we look at scripture like Galatians 3, 27 through 28, we often view it from our own place or position, praising God for his inclusiveness, but often imagining that being called into his family requires that everyone else conforms to, to us or our values. Galatians doesn't destroy our diversity. It actually recognizes the beauty of diversity in people, in outlooks, in experience, and in giftings, and says that we are all welcome around the table just as we are. God never told Eve that the way that she could really serve creation is to become just like Adam. No, he said, you are my creation, and you get to contribute just as you are, as fellow heirs and partners in the gospel work, partners in the adventure, the adventure walking side by side, doing the work of God. Galatians 3 tells us that we don't have to change our, our nationality, where we come from, our position in society, or our status as male or female in order to fully please God. Galatians 3 tells us that God is pleased to welcome you into his family as you are and is pleased to do a transforming work so that as we become more and more like Jesus, part of our transformation is growing in appreciation for one another, which will lead us to a deeper unity as the body of Christ. Let me speak clearly to all of us in this room. If you feel that you have nothing to offer to Team Jesus, the church, let me say this. You are loved, you are valued, and God has given you special tasks uh, to help and spread the good news of the kingdom. There is no one who is insignificant in God's family. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared ahead of time for us to do. And this includes everyone who is part of God's family. Let's follow in the example of, of these women mentioned in Luke chapter 8 and, and confidently serve with Jesus wherever he, he leads us. And if we have struggled with seeing other people's giftings and strengths and have created categories either here in the church or, or out there in the larger world, categories that say these gifts and people are valuable and these are secondary, let's repent of that and work fully to embrace one another for, for what we have to offer. 
walking together side by side, encouraging one another, helping one another grow deeper in our walk with the Lord, and walking side by side in true, true unity as Jesus' church. Lord Jesus, we come today. We thank you for the gift of grace that you have offered each and every one of us. We thank you for the gifts of the Spirit that you had given to each and every one of your children to go and spread the gospel news in tangible ways, in financial ways, and in what we would say are spiritual ways, and in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for those giftings and the opportunity that you have provided to us. We come asking, Lord, that you would knit us together unify us in mission and purpose, and let us appreciate and encourage one another in the gifts that you have given to each and every one of us. And we come in Jesus' name. Amen.